my wife has an annoying habit. <laughs> Is that like the most dangerous way for any man to begin a sermon, right? <laughs> like, don't do it, dude. Abort, abort. So my wife has an annoying habit. And I'm just going to charge ahead. What she does when she reads a, a book, a novel, she will get a couple chapters in. Once she's met the characters and the conflict and the tension has been introduced, she will then skip to the end of the book. Read the last couple chapters and then come back and read the rest. And I think it's illegal. I, I think it might be a felony. I'm not really sure. But what she says is that she just, she can't handle it. Like once she meets the characters, they become real to her. And I'm like, honey, it's fiction, which leads to the biggest fights in our marriage right there. Like, they're real. Okay. Okay. So, so they become real to her and then the conflict and it's too much for her to handle. So she skips to the end. She reads it. Now she says she can go back and read the rest of the story, which I think is why, but she does. And she reads the rest of the story and she says it allows her to relax and just enjoy the story. And so I have made fun of her for that uh, for years until I realized it's, an, it's a very godly thing to do. So our God has told us how the story ends. I mean, you get that. Like we're in the midst of the story and we know the characters and there's a lot of conflict and tension. And what he did is he said, hey, let me let you know how the story ends. So that, so that you can then go back and in the midst of the story, it's still hard at times, right? But you can relax knowing that you're on a great adventure, a good story, but it ends well. Dang it, my wife is more godly than me again, again. Oh, well. So here we are in this series called Creed, where what we're doing as a church is working our way through the Apostles' Creed, this ancient summary of core Christian beliefs. I don't know if you've caught us as pastors, but what we've actually been doing in addition to that is sneaking in redemption's doctrinal statement. So we're kind of doing both. We're making sure we cover our doctrinal statement as a church you suckers. So <laughs> dragging you into that. So in the Creed series, we actually have one bonus episode next week on angels and demons. It's actually not in the Apostles' Creed, but it is in our doctrinal statement. And so that'll round that out. That's next week. For this week, actually, we're going to cover the very last bit of the Apostles' Creed. And here's how it ends. It says, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Now that's not, doesn't say a lot, but earlier when we were looking at Jesus, we read this. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. All right, so... There it is. It doesn't say a ton, but it does talk about what's going to happen at the end. Notice where the Apostles' Creed ends is with the end. Let me tell you how the story ends so you can relax in the middle of it. And no, no doubt that's in our doctrinal statement as well. You'll see it here. It says, we believe in that blessed hope, the personal and imminent return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We believe in the bodily resurrection of the just and unjust, the everlasting conscious punishment of the lost in hell, and the everlasting blessedness of the saved in heaven. 
So what we're talking about today is the future, or end times, if you want a big $20 word, eschatology. We're talking about end times stuff. Now the problem is that when Christians start to talk about eschatology, we get weird. We get weird in really, I think, two ways at least. And the first is that we act like this is the most important thing. I mean, we get it as pastor, we just have to study the end times. We do. You know, listen, end time stuff is important. That's why it's in the word of God. It's good stuff. But keep this in mind. What we talked about last week, y'all are riddled with shame. Okay? A lot of us don't know how to walk with God on a day in, day out basis. How to read our Bibles, how to pray. Your marriage is a mess. You're mean to your kids. You're not loving the community around us, not having kingdom impact. You're gossips and you're spreading dissension and division. But you think that what we really need to study is end time stuff. I mean, you see that? It's like, I don't know that that's our greatest need right now. We get weird on that. Another way that we get weird is that we get really dogmatic about our opinion on the details of the future, of stuff that hasn't happened yet. Okay, listen, you ask me what I did yesterday, I'm going to be dogmatic because it happened. You ask me what I'm going to be, be doing tomorrow, I'm going to be tentative because it hasn't happened yet, it's future, and I'm, I think, but I'm not sure, okay? Now, what happens is, Christians, we, we get our charts. Have you seen our end times, eschatology, our charts and our timelines and our graphs and our details? And then the gloves come off and we fight about this stuff. We're not fighting over the big clear stuff. Jesus is coming back, period, amen. But we're, we're fighting over the minutia in the details of this stuff. So what we have then is pretty typically three different opinions or three camps in this uh, called amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial. If you're premillennial, then that breaks down into are you pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? And if right now you're going, what? Good. <laughs> Good. Uh, because you'll notice our church doesn't have an official position on that. None of that showed up in our doctrinal statement on purpose. It is okay to have personal opinions on these things. I have a stance. I have a studied reason op opinion on that. And all of our pastors agreed until Sean came and messed it up. <laughs> so, it is, but it's okay because we agree on the big stuff. We even agree on the big stuff of end time stuff. But when, when it comes to either pre-mill or ah-mill, Sean's different. I mean, the boy's different, right? And, and that's okay, because he's wrong. <laughs> or I am. And I mean that. I might be wrong. I encountered this phrase, well, I love this, eschatological humility. Humility. Let's be dogmatic about the past, not the future. Dogmatic about the details of Christ's first coming because it happened and there it is. And then tentative about our opinions on the details of his second coming because we're not really sure. Hey, remember this. The Jews were dogmatic about the details of his first coming before it even happened, okay? They knew the Messiah was coming, and they knew, they absolutely knew that he was going to be a military conquering Messiah. Oops. Got it wrong. And they were working off scripture. 
And they mostly all agreed about it, right? The good news is that our faith is in the details of Jesus' first coming, not in the details of his second coming. And so we can have eschatological humility. So when Shannon and I started out in ministry decades ago, we learned this paradigm that I think is really helpful. Conviction, persuasion, opinion. These are three levels of belief. Conviction level is the stuff that is most important. It's crystal clear in scripture, like Jesus is coming back, absolutely. Historic, orthodox Christianity has agreed on this stuff. And these are the things, conviction level, I will die for them. Which means I want the list really short, right? Do you notice the Apostles' Creed is kind of short? See that? Down the hierarchy is persuasion level things. These things are important. And I have studied them and I have reasoned opinions about them. Things like uh, my, my thoughts on charismatic gifts. Like, oh, talk to me about that. Not now. I got videos. You can go watch them, right? But that, that'd be an example of stuff like that. And you know what? Good Christians disagree on that. This is a debate within the family of God. When you disagree on conviction, you're probably outside the family, right? Persuasion, this is an in- inter-family debate. And then you get down to the lowest rung, opinion level. This is much less important stuff, uh, like the fact that dogs are blessed and cats are demonic. Now, it's true, but it's my opinion. And opinions are a dime a dozen, and it's just not that important. Now, here's the gold of this. It's really important that we don't elevate things up the hierarchy. See, our tendency is to take opinions and persuasions and act as if they're convictions, and they're not. And we certainly do this in the realm of eschatology. We don't want to push it up the scale, okay? Because when we do that as Christians, we can't see the forest for the trees. And we get lost in the weeds, and we get lost in the details, and we're missing the big picture. What is the big picture? Well, those are the big things that we capture in the Apostles' Creed or in our doctrinal statement. Things like Jesus is coming back. 100%. Amen. Yes. I'll go to the mat for that one. Yep. Jesus is coming back. Also, that could be at any time. That's the word imminent there. Could be at any time. Okay. So when somebody makes a prediction, uh, I know Jesus is coming back on this date. You go to the calendar, cross that one off. Jesus said, nobody knows the day or the hour. Somebody predicts that date, that one you can safely eliminate. Thanks for narrowing the possibilities. You know, like, so it's a, it could be at any time. And so somebody, well, have you seen these signs? Seems like, no. Jesus says, it's going to be surprising. Okay, could happen at any time. Now, another biggie in there is the bodily resurrection of everyone, both the just and the unjust. Okay, be careful with what that means, though. The just are those who are justified by their faith in Jesus Christ. They're the saved. They go to heaven. The unjust, so those aren't the good people, and the unjust aren't the bad people. Everyone's bad. The unjust are those who are not justified by faith in what Jesus did on the cross. So they are lost, and they are headed to hell. That's a biggie. Now, another thing it says in there is not only that Jesus is coming back, but this is our hope. 
That's our hope. If we're honest, we tend to hope in this broken world. My hope is that God will make things a little bit better for me this week. That's No, no. Our hope is that Jesus comes back and takes us out of here. That's the hope. That's the hope. And you'll see that in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and following. It says, for the grace of God has appeared. Now that's past tense. That's about his first coming. Okay? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And here it is. Look at this. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's our hope, that Jesus comes and gets us. And to that I say, bring it, bring it. A more holy way to say it is Maranatha, okay? Uh, If you've heard that term, some churches are called Maranatha, it means come, O Lord, come, which is to say, bring it. Bring it. I'm good to go. Wrap this thing up. Now, when he comes and wraps things up, then you see that there are two possible destinies for human beings. um, That we're going to go to one of two places. So I'm going to deal with the bad news first, because we don't like talking about it. The reality is this, that hell is real. It's awkward, particularly in a post-Christian society. That's one we would rather not talk about. In fact, some pastors are starting to abandon that position even. Uh, But listen, there are dozens of passages in the Bible that talk about hell. Usually heaven and hell are addressed in the same passage, such that to deny one is to deny the other. And the same language is applied to both, meaning eternal and forever. It's applied to both. The bulk of the passages about hell come from the lips of Jesus. That's right. Evidently, Jesus was very concerned about it, knew about it, and wanted us to know about it. Uh, Here's a passage, actually, from uh, from God, his word, but through the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Starting in verse 7, it says this. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, when you look at the end of that thing, that's weird. Like, how... How do you go away from the presence of the Lord? Isn't God everywhere present? Well, yeah. And so that means God is present in hell, but in hell, it is his manifest presence of wrath. What's absent is everything good and glorious, everything beautiful and everything wonderful. That's hell. Everything glorious, that's gone, that's hell. But note this, uh, in hell, people are getting what they wanted. I don't want God ruling my life. I don't want him in my life. I don't want relationship with him. I'm the captain of my own fate. I'm going to run my own show and I'm going to reject God and I'm going to reject his gospel. And you know what? Okay. God says, okay, you get what you want. I'm out. And you lose all beauty and glory and everything good. That's hell. 
That's hell. It also speaks of it there as eternal destruction. Now, one question comes up is, are are people destroyed, done, for all eternity? Or is it ongoing conscious destruction for all eternity? The first one is annihilation. Boop, you're just gone. The second one is hell. Which is it? Well, some data points. Remember, Jesus said of Judas, the one who betrayed him, Jesus said of him, it would have been better for Judas had he never been born. How's that? Like if it's just annihilation, so Judas gets to live his life, do what he wants to do, get 30 pieces of silver, and then he dies and he's gone. Jesus says, no, no, no. Jesus had in mind that something's coming for Judas that is so horrific, it would have been better for Judas had he never been born. And then this is pretty clear as well. You got Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. It says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. A couple things. We can get rid of the notion that hell is Satan's domain. Oh, <laughs> no. Hell is designed for Satan's torment. He's not there ruling and poking people with a pitchfork. No, that's not the way it goes. Day and night tormented forever and ever, okay? And and you see that then, of course, it's not annihilation. It's ongoing eternal punishment. Okay, but that's Satan, not us, right? Five verses later. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's heavy, right? You read that and it's like, I kind of want to know how not to go there, right? Like, like, tell me, like, who is it that goes to hell? I already told you, it's not that the good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. That's not the way it works. Notice what it says there is if your name is not found written in the book of life. How do you get your name written in the book of life? You receive Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord. Remember, 2 Thessalonians said, those who do not know God and do not obey his gospel, not his laws, not his, don't obey the gospel, so you have not put your faith in Christ. So, if somebody refuses the gift of salvation that is offered to them, can we then call God unloving? I mean, God doesn't like hell. He's not excited about the idea Like, he went to great measures. He stepped out of heaven, took on flesh in Jesus, died a horrible death on the cross, all to offer salvation. And if somebody rejects that gift, we can't call God unloving. Let me get at it this way. Let's say you're pulled over, you get a huge speeding ticket, huge fine, and you can't afford to pay it. Some of you are like, that's not an analogy, that's my life. I understand. I understand. Here's the good news. The judge is your father. Here's the bad news. He's a good judge. And he loves justice. And he would not pervert his judgeship. Okay? And so he is going to pronounce the sentence. Maximum fine, the gavel falls. But what he does next is he stands up from the bench and takes off his robe. He steps down, comes along and stands alongside you as, his, as your father and, and he offers to pay the fine for you. Justice, love, both. But in that moment, your pride wells up. 
I don't want your money. I don't want your hooks in my life. I don't want you telling me what to do. I don't want a relationship with you. You take your money and walk away. I'll take care of myself. Okay. Then you go to jail. Okay. Now, can we then say that the judge is unloving? Well, no. He did everything, but you rejected it. See that? Well, that's fun to talk about. Y'all are really quiet. Hell's no fun. Okay, so let's switch gears. Let's talk about heaven for a little bit. One of the questions that comes up is, do our pets go to heaven? And of course, the answer is dogs, yes. (laughs) But demons go to hell. So do what you will. That's definitely down at opinion level. We're bottom rung there. Okay, enough of that. Actually, nobody goes to heaven. You you actually go to the new earth. Wait, what? (laughs) What is going on here? Yeah, look look at Revelation chapter 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Look forward to that. Listen, when I read that, God is their God. He's right there. That means we get the face of God back that we lost in the Garden of Eden when sin entered and death entered. In fact, this almost sounds like the Garden of Eden before sin. We just get to walk with God again, right? And the planet, it's a new planet, a resurrected planet, the new earth. So imagine this planet, which is, it's broken, it's off kilter, right? But can you imagine this planet with no death, no disease, no decay, no disorder, no degeneration? Oh, sign me up. That's the new earth. C.S. Lewis tries to capture what that might feel like. So, you, you know, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. In the last book called The Last Battle, he, he tries to give a taste. So they had the old Narnia and the new Narnia, like the old earth and the new earth. So here's a taste for it. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If ever you get there, you will know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed, and then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is a land I've been looking for my whole life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up. Come further in. One of the great things about the new earth is that there will be no sin. 
Uh, in fact, we see that in Second Peter chapter 3. It says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And I, I, I'll tell you what, sometimes I think I can't wait for sin to be done away. But I, I'll tell you, it's not your sin that I'm worried about. Yeah, your sin hurts me, my sin hurts you, and that'll be done, and I'm so excited about that. But listen, I can't wait till my sin's gone because I'm so tired of day after day after day trying to fight that battle, and I get home someday, and it's done. I don't have to carry that weight anymore. Come, Jesus, come. Bring it. Bring it. And so our future reality as those who have faith in Jesus is we will have a resurrected relationship with a resurrected Lord in our resurrected bodies on a resurrected planet. He's the resurrecting king, and it's going to be glorious. Now, heaven or hell, or to be more accurate, okay, the new earth or the lake of fire, either way, what if, what if, instead of debating and arguing about details and charts and timelines. What if we remembered this week that every person we interact with is headed to one of those two destinies? And I'll go again to C.S. Lewis because the guy's just brilliant. Look, look how he put this. He said, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. He's not a polytheist, okay? He, he doesn't, it's not idolatry. You'll see what he's saying here in a bit. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all love, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. What if you remembered that as you interact with every person this week? Now, as soon as I go there, what we're starting to roll into is, I'm saying this stuff should put, this isn't just about later, this should impact our life now, how we interact. Listen, we don't want just dry, dusty theology and doctrine in your brains and puff you up and aren't you a good theologian, yay. No, we want passion. We want not just truth, but spirit. That's the worshipers God's looking for. We want compassion and heart and response. So what do we do with this stuff? Well, couple things. Number one, I want you to think about where is your hope? 
Well, it's in Jesus, Pastor Rick. Good for you. That's the right answer. But is it really? Because it seems like day in, day out, week in, week out, we put our hope in money and job and success and possessions and security and influence and love and relationships and looks. We put it in health. And all those are misplaced hopes because they will disappoint you. They will crush you. They will let you down. And you know it. And the proof that you know it is that you have anxiety and fear and you're controlling and you're angry. Those are like warning lights on the dash saying you're placing your hope in the wrong things. Because Jesus will never be taken from you and he is coming back for, for you. And if you hope in that, you're good. We have misplaced hope. Why? Why do we keep putting our hope in this fallen world? Listen, understand, the Apostles' Creed was written during a time when Christians were being persecuted. Okay? So, for them to confess these beliefs, that means life in this world got way worse for them. Why'd they do it? Because it's true. Because this life is going to stink anyway. And because they were hoping not in this world, but in the one to come, in eternity. And that's what I want you to do. Now, some of you have seen me use this illustration before. The most difficult part of this illustration is to get the rope to, like, actually unfurl. Sorry, Paul. There you go. Just throw it down there. All right, good. That's good. Now, uh, so the idea here is this rope represents the timeline of eternity. And you'll notice it's long, long, really long. And it keeps going. It's long. Like eternity's long. It's really, 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 really long. In fact, it's an imperfect illustration because this has an end. And if it were real, it would just infinitely go on and we'd be here a long time as I was doing that, right? So it keep going. But the point is that eternity, folks, this is like really, really, really long time. Now, down at this front end here, I, have, I don't know if you can see this little tip of duct tape I put on there. That represents your life in this world right now. 70, 70 80 years, something like that. That's all you got. And the question is, where's your hope? Are you going to put your hope in this little thing, and then it's done? Or in the whole rope of eternity? Where are you going to place your hope? What are you going to live for? What are you going to invest in? What are you going to worry about week in, week out? Like, are you going to live for eternity? Well, I don't mean be alive for eternity. I mean, are you going to invest your life into eternity? Where is your hope? The second thing I want you to do is I want you to be like my wife. I want you to remember the end of the story. Flip to the end of the story. Like when life is hard and there's conflict and it's painful, there's tension, there's anxiety, you got to remind yourself it ends well. Now that doesn't make the pain go away. We're not going to be naive. It still hurts. But it helps a lot in the midst of the conflict of the middle chapters to remember it ends well. Be comforted by that. Be comforted. Thirdly, I want you to live on a rescue mission. I don't mean I want you to move. Don't change your address. That's not the point. But for your whole life, go on a rescue mission. There was a pastor who stood before his congregation one Sunday morning, and he said, I have three things to tell you. 
Number one, millions of people are dying and going to hell. Number two, most of you don't give a damn. And number three, the proof is that right now you're probably more concerned that I, your pastor, use the word damn than you are that millions of people are dying and going to hell. Dang it, first time I heard that, I was like, oh, you got me. (laughs) Now, I don't assume you just don't care. But listen, in... Dr. John Wolverd, in his commentary on Revelation, that those verses where if anyone's name is not written in the book of life, he too is thrown into the lake of fire. Here's what he said about those verses. Though many have attempted to find some scriptural way to avoid the doctrine of eternal punishment, as far as biblical revelation is concerned, there are only two destinies for human souls. One is to be with the Lord, and the other is to be forever separated from God in the lake of fire. This solemn fact is motivation for carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth, whatever the cost, and doing everything possible to inform and challenge people to receive Christ before it is too late. And if someone ends up going to the lake of fire, somebody I knew, I want it to be because they rejected the gospel, not because I didn't offer the gospel. You feel that? That's why we go, no, grow, go. Know Jesus Christ personally. Grow in your relationship with him. Go advance his kingdom. Let's take the gospel to everyone. Let's go on a rescue mission. Fourth and last, I want you to look forward to the glory of heaven. But what's that mean? I chose my words really carefully. What do you think is the glory of heaven? Do you think it's planet paradise? Do you think it's hedonism that you get to do whatever you want there? Do you think it's reunion with departed loved ones that you miss? Notice glory is capitalized because he has a name. Jesus is the glory of heaven. And you know he's coming. You just don't know when. You don't know the day or the hour. He'll show up. It'll be surprising. And then in that reunion, we're going to have tunnel vision to the glory of heaven, Jesus himself. And we're going to run. We're going to run right to him and jump into his arms. Because like, we're not going to care what the new earth looks like when Jesus is standing there. Right? And when, when I was thinking about that, it reminded me of those... Uh, videos, you've probably seen some of them, of soldiers who've been deployed for a while away from their family, and then they come home and they surprise the family, and they just show up. Watch this one. Please make welcome back home, First Lieutenant. love those videos. I could binge watch them all day. I did binge watch them all yesterday. I sat in a coffee shop, tears coming down. Like, oh. It was awkward. It was awkward. The glory is so... What, did you see the look on the little boy's face? Tears, just an emotion just flooded. And I'll tell you what, he had tunnel vision. He forgot his classmates were there. He, forget, he didn't hear the clapping. His dad was home. And he ran and jumped into his arms. What do you think the first moment in heaven is going to be like? Right? We're going to have tunnel vision to our Lord. 
He's glorious. God is with his people. He's right there. Listen, this is kind of a litmus test for religion versus relationship. In religion, I have a contract with God. I do certain religious duties, and then I expect God to deliver, to make my life a little bit better on earth, and then he takes me home to heaven. But notice, I don't want God. I don't love God. I don't have tunnel vision to God. What I want is God's stuff. It's religion. Relationship is where I love God. And I cannot wait for that moment that he comes back for me. I'm going to have tunnel vision and I'm going to run and jump into his arms. That's relationship. Now, when it comes to the future or end times or eschatology, the biblical emphasis is not details, but destiny. And it's not charts, it's hearts. It's not confusing it's comforting. And it's not hedonism in heaven. It's home with Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches. And Jesus, he is our hope. And I can't wait for this. And to that end, let me pray. Father, thank you very, very much for what you have done for us by grace. We admit right now that we do not deserve heaven. I deserve hell. Every last one of us does. And the surprising thing, Lord, is not that anyone is in hell. It's surprising that anyone goes to the new earth. But you did it by grace through the cross of Christ, and we're so grateful. And Father God, would you let the return of Christ be our blessed hope that we look forward to that moment, not that we live well here, but that moment when Jesus comes back and takes us out of here. Lord, could that hope start to impact how we live our lives right now? And I pray for that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together as we respond before we sing. We're going to recite this creed together. So if you will say it aloud with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.